Uh, that's my Christmas present, guys, right there. Good job. <clears throat> I love that song. <clears throat> I got a message that goes along with that out of Genesis where Isaac goes and gets his bride, or Eleazar, and uh, sometime you guys ought to sing that song. I'll preach the message, and we'll give them a double hit here. <laughs> well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to I invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 10. And uh, we're going to continue on today in that great chapter. We've learned a lot of great practical principles out of the book of Proverbs. You know, as I said earlier before we prayed, and uh, I, when I was talking about the, uh, um, the prayer request, I had missed, uh, I just found out afterwards that Chris Pascano, who played our piano, his wife had a heart attack this week, and she's doing fine. We need to pray for her. Put her on your prayer list. But, you know, that's really... Uh, what our church is about is helping you get through whatever you're going through. And uh, everybody here, you know, is on different spiritual levels. I, I never want anybody to think because maybe they don't know much about the Bible that, or, and, and a lot of people around here do that you, you don't fit in. That's, that's not really what it's about. Our job is to take you on whatever level you are and to help you get wherever God wants you to go. And in the process of that, obviously, there'll be things that come into your life that you have to deal with. Some things will come into your life because of some bad choices that you made. Some things will come into your life simply because the bad things just happen in the world that we live in. And I told you many, many times, you know, many times we're not responsible for the bad things that happen to us, but we are responsible how we respond to it and how we deal with it. So that's what we try to do. And there's no greater book in the Bible uh, that I've ever found that when you systematically kind of go through it, like we're doing, that will give you more practical principles on living life on planet Earth than the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs, uh, when you look at it, you know, it uh, can be intimidating because it's, uh, you know, many people read it and don't understand what it's saying. And, but we just take it one step at a time as we go through it. We break it down verse by verse, word by word. But mostly what we do is we want to glean out of it the principles. And we want to be able to show you when we're done how the book really presents itself in all fashions and all ways. You've seen over the last three or four weeks as we've kind of put it all together, you've seen how that we're connecting with the book of Proverbs to many stories in the New Testament that illustrate the principles. And that's something that you want to learn about the Bible. That's the beauty of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I understand, you know, in a historical application or a deep doctrinal application, the Old Testament has its format for what it's for to the nation of Israel. I know that. And the New Testament is all about the church and how it deals with the church and the structure of the church. I understand that. But you're going to also find that underneath all of that, when it comes down to you and me going through the daily struggles of life, the things that we have to work through, the things that we have to uh, deal with, that it's a great combination where you'll have the, the, the New Testament principles, then you'll have the Old Testament illustration of the principles that when you match them up and you put them together, they form a greater understanding of what the principle is to us and really helps us yeah, that's really what we've been trying to do and will continue to try to do. I'm not interested in setting a, a, a winning a race and how fast we get through Proverbs so we can get to the next book. Uh, my goal is to help you understand this book because personally, my own humble opinion, I think it's the single greatest book in the Bible on understanding how to live your life on planet Earth. 
And last week we looked at Proverbs chapter 10, verses 18 through 22, and we've been taking small sections of it. And again, we saw some great principles for life and how uh, to be our best for the Lord Jesus and all that we do. Today we're going to pick it up in chapter 10 and another small section, verses 23 through 26. And I'll read it and then we'll start to put it together. It says this, It is as sport to a fool to do mischief, but a man of understanding hath wisdom. The fear of the wicked, it shall come upon him, but the desire of the righteous shall be granted. As the whirlwind passes, so is the wicked no more, but the righteous is an everlasting foundation. As vinegar to the teeth and as smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to them that send him. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we thank you for the folks that have come out today. We thank you for uh, the good Christmas that we had and the blessings that we have in our families. And, and yet, Lord, we even know that even while that we have all the blessings, we know that there's God's people out there that they're going through some tough times, and we always want to be mindful of that. We always want to be praying for those people and doing whatever we can do to lift them up and to help them. And we just thank you for all that you do. Pray out of this service today that you'll give us what we need. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, there's a lot that we've been getting out of the book of Proverbs. And uh, it all goes back to the main theme of Proverbs. And in Proverbs, you have a main theme and you have a sub-theme. We know that the main theme of Proverbs is about two men. And we're all the way through the Bible. We find it all the way through the book of Proverbs. You find it's about a wise man and a foolish man. And you'll remember that I showed you that how the Bible has different applications. And I want you to just get the understanding of this in Proverbs. We don't really hammer on it a lot. You'll figure it out as you continue to grow. But we know that from a doctrinal standpoint, from a prophetic standpoint, we know that we know that uh, uh, this wise man and this foolish man is a picture of the nation of Israel. And as Israel enters into uh, the great tribulation period, uh, which everybody knows uh, about the tribulation and the Antichrist and all of that, we know that the, the tribulation period basically uh, is, is a seven-year period. It's broken down into two sections of three and a half years each. In the first section, the Antichrist shows up, and as the Bible says, uh, he talks about peace and safety. He brings about a false peace to the nation of Israel. I think it's 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. And uh, he makes all the wars end. He brings an end to every strife in America, in the country, and in the world. And he makes an alliance with all the nations, and he unifies all of the nations together. And all the Israel, uh, all of Israel gets caught up into that and becomes part of that. And for three and a half years, it's peace and safety. But the Antichrist is very deceptive. We know from the Bible and our past studies in the Word of God that he has a plan, and that plan is against everything that God's going to do. And when he shows up and he brings in this peace and safety, uh, it's, it's, it's to put everybody to sleep. It's to get everybody to think that uh, God has come back. He's the anti-Christ. He's anti against the real Christ. He comes in and sets up a counterfeit system. Everybody in the world believes it. Of course, we're gone because we're raptured out, so we're taken out. So the whole world is left to believe his lie and deception. But his real purpose is to destroy the nation of Israel. 
And this is where Proverbs is so key. And I want you to see this because I want to make an application to your life and my life here in just a moment. He, he begins to give them a false security, a false hope that everything is finally going to be okay for them. And in the middle of the three and a half years, this is found in Revelation chapter 12 and 13, if you want to look it up, or Matthew chapter 24, he then begins to turn against the nation of Israel. At that point, where everything up to that point was peace and safety and was great, now he begins to tear it all down and he actively unifies the whole world to wipe out and destroy God's people, the nation of Israel. The book of Proverbs, doctrinally, is the wisdom and instruction and understanding that God gives the Jew. Remember now, all through the book of Proverbs in the first eight chapters, we saw it starting, my son, my son. And I told you that in a doctrinal prophetic application, my son is the nation of Israel. But in a practical way, it's you and me. You want to keep that in mind. So the instructions of Proverbs from a, from a doctrinal standpoint is God giving them the wisdom, the understanding, the discernment, all of those great words that we have talked about so far in Proverbs that the Jew doesn't get trapped, that he sees through what the Antichrist is trying to do. He has the wisdom of God, the understanding of God. He has discernment. He has discretion. These are all words that we have studied in the book of Proverbs. And now he has the ability to see through this false peace and safety. Many of the Jews who are not wise, who are foolish, will buy right into it. And they will be destroyed. And they will get destroyed. And the wise man will take God's instruction, and the foolish man won't. And he'll be destroyed. And really, it's just that simple. You see an illustration of this. Here's the... New Testament principle. If you would turn over to Matthew chapter 25, I want to read a passage here that if you don't already have it marked in the book of Proverbs and vice versa, you'll want to put it in. Matthew chapter 25 is one of the great parallel chapters of the New Testament that go along with the book of Proverbs and the Old Testament about a wise man and a foolish man. Now here's what it says. Matthew 25, 1. <clears throat> then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Now we know the bridegroom is Christ. <clears throat> we know there's going to be a marriage of the Lamb. That's for the church in Christ. We're already gone now, and so this is the this is the <clears throat> this is the uh, nation of Israel. These virgins. But look at verse two. <clears throat> and five of them were wise, and five were foolish. Okay? There's your wise man and your foolish man talked about in the book of Proverbs and really throughout the rest of the whole Bible. <clears throat> they that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps, and while the bridegroom tarried, <clears throat> they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go you out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, <clears throat> and the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there not be enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Now, what I want you to see here is, is ten virgins. <clears throat> five are wise, five are foolish. This represents 
the two types of people talked about in the book of Proverbs. This context here is during the tribulation period. Now, I got to tell you this. A lot of people who don't understand the Bible and how the Bible lays out will use this passage to try to think, get you to think that you can lose your salvation. And they'll try to put this into the church, into Christianity, <clears throat> that here's a Christian who doesn't do what's right, so he loses his salvation. There isn't even any Christianity yet in the book of Matthew. The church hasn't even started. This is all dealing with the nation of Israel. This passage is used to show you many times uh, that, as I said, you can lose your salvation. But it's not. It's just a passage that shows you you can lose your mind when you don't follow what the Bible says. The Bible is very clear that these wise men and these foolish people here is a nation of Israel back in the book of Proverbs. There's a great parallel. Now, I'll give you another example uh, in Matthew chapter 2. We know that around this time every year, we talk about the birth of Christ. And we know the story in Matthew chapter 2, how that the wise men came to the birth of Christ. And, you know, it's a story that's illustrated in every nativity scene. I don't care where you go. You, got, you always got Mary and Joseph. You got a little, little box there with a little baby in it. You got, usually got a camel or a cow behind it someplace. And then you got three guys there, three wise men. And uh, they're standing there presenting their gifts. And that's a standard nativity scene. You find it, you know, as you drive up and down, look at the Christmas lights on people's houses, or you get a Christmas card with it on and all those things. I get it. I understand it. But it's much more deeper than that. They're called wise men. The Bible says they're from the east. That would be Babylon. And these wise men are men who (coughs) somehow knew exactly when Christ was going to be born. They weren't just out circulating around and got a, saw it in a newspaper or on a newsflash that Christ was going to be born. They knew exactly when he was going to be born. They're from the east. That would suggest that they had the book of Daniel. When Daniel wrote the book of Daniel in the captivity, he was in the east. And I also know that from Daniel chapter 9 and other places in the book of Daniel, they could have figured out almost exactly the time that Christ was going to be born. The Old Testament tells you where he'll be born. It tells you what time of year he'll be born. It tells you everything you need to know almost to the day and year of when he would be born from Daniel chapter 9. They're called wise men because they search the scriptures. And when they searched the scriptures in Daniel and Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament, they found out where he was going to be born, when he was going to be born, and they came to find him at the first coming of Christ. That's always been a great source of of inspiration to me to show me that these men got into the Bible and found out when Christ was coming the first time pretty close. And I'll tell you something else. Wise men today who still believe the book and get into the Word of God can find out pretty close when he's coming at the second coming of Christ. It's a marvelous thing, but they're wise men. They're wise because they got into the Bible. They're wise because they believe the Bible. And notice how the story unfolds. The fool in the story is Herod. Herod can't see the star. Herod knows nothing about the star. He hears all these rumors, and he's asking them, but they're smarter than the problem. <clears throat> and they don't give Herod the answers where he can find the Christ child. <clears throat> and in fact, when they're ready to go back home, an angel shows up and gives them instructions, and they go home another way. 
That's what the Bible does. The Bible's a great book to show you you better go home the other way. It's a great book that lays it out. It's incredible to cross-reference these Old Testament examples with the New Testament principles. Now, from a practical standpoint, we see that just as in the tribulation period where Israel goes through their time called Daniel's 70th week, the great tribulation, the tribulation period, Jacob's trouble, Jacob's time of trouble, we see all of that and we see Israel going through that and we see that God gives them instructions as his son uh, that not to be deceived of the devil. So we see in our life today in a practical standpoint in the church, we see wise men and foolish men today. The wise man will heed what the book of Proverbs says. And just as the Jew in the tribulation that's a wise man will take the instruction of God and sidestep all the traps and the snares that the Antichrist is going to lay out for him, you and me in life today, we're up against the wiles of the devil. We're up against all of the things the devil wants to throw at us. And though we're not in the tribulation period by any stretch of the imagination, we all live in this world, and it's the same wisdom that will get you and I through that will get the Jew through. Where the Antichrist wants to trap them in the tribulation, the devil wants to mess you up today. Where God gives them instructions in the Old Testament and in the tribulation period to sidestep and have a life that they can get past those temptations and all the things that the devil's got for them, in the New Testament, we have the same instructions. So it works that way. <clears throat> You'll want to remember that <clears throat> Israel in Exodus chapter 4 is God's son as a nation. And you and I are in the New Testament are God's son as New Testament Christians. So with that in mind, understanding the parallels, realizing that <clears throat> the wisdom and the instruction doctrinally are to Israel, but inspirationally to you and me. And where the Antichrist wants to mess up the nation of Israel, Today, the devil wants to mess up your life and my life. And it's the same instructions, the same wisdom, the same discretion, the same discernment that God will give them in their day that God wants to give you today in your day through the book of Proverbs that you don't get caught up in those traps. So let's begin to look at these things. And here again, there's some very good <coughs> principles of life here. Verse 23 says, <coughs> It is sport to a fool to do mischief, but a man of understanding hath wisdom. Now, the first part of that says it is sport to a fool to do mischief. I've been in the ministry many, many, many years, over 40. I've seen every problem, every issue, everything that comes up. I've seen the devil do some amazing things. I'm also a student of history. I love church history. I don't think you can study uh, the Bible without getting an understanding of history because all the Bible is all history. And I've been, I've been amazed sometimes at how the devil down through history in such an absolute incredible way has changed the course of events, <clears throat> has changed this or done this right under everybody else's nose. Nobody ever caught it or most everybody ever caught it. It's always amazed me. <clears throat> I, I look back in history and I see some great pivotal points in history. I see some great change points where <clears throat> it began to go this way and now it's going this way. Whether you know it or not, we today are living in probably what is the final change point of all history where the devil now is moving in a, and he did it right under everybody's nose <clears throat> and nobody caught it. 
Nobody wanted to catch it. And one of the things that he's done that I've, I've always, ad- I don't want to use the word admired about him, but one of the things that he's done, I've always been amazed by the way he can do it, is to get you and me to think and the world to think that what is sin in God's sight is fun in our world. It amazes me how he does that. And the Bible says it is sport to a fool to do mischief. Now, this is probably one of the most up-to-date illustrations uh, of the world we live in today, uh, even though it was written in 1000 B.C. The Bible is always relevant. We get the idea that the Bible's an ancient book. You know, the Bible was written thousands of years ago, so it can't be really relevant to modern man today. No, you're wrong. The Bible is just as prevalent and relevant today as it was 4,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, because the Bible is a book on human nature. And though times may change, society may change, nations may change, lands may change hands, human nature always stays the same. And that book defines and critiques human nature. The word sport in the Bible, it's an old English word. It means to have a good time, to have fun, an enjoyable time. We call football. We go to a baseball game. We watch a soccer match. We play basketball. We go to a car race, an auto race, or you play golf, or you go hunting, or you go fishing. We call it a sport because it's things we, something we enjoy watching or enjoy doing. It's recreational. It's having fun. It's having a good time, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. And the verse simply states that a fool will make any sin he does try to bring it into a fun thing that's accepted, an accepted thing, the norm. Like this is what life really is. My sin is no longer sin. My sin now is a sport. It's fun. It's something we all do. We want to have a good time. You got to do this because this is fun. We've taken the word sin out and put the word fun in. And of course, you see it all the time. And to, uh, but to the man with no understanding, it's so subtle. He can't see it. I, 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 every time I see a bird commercial on TV, I just, I just, I just laugh. I, I see the illustration of this. When they have beer commercials on television, it's always with young kids. It's always at a beach party. Good friends, good beer, good Lowenbrow, all that stuff, you know. At Christmas time, uh, uh, the, the, number one, the number one commercials during the Super Bowl is Budweiser beer commercials. You have the frogs, or you have this, or you have that. And it's just like you can't watch football without Budweiser. Everything is around the world. It, it, it gears in that to try to make it like it's a, an accepted thing to do. And people, young men and young ladies, they get caught up in that. The, the young kids, the, uh, the parties on the beach and the, and the boating and the music and the great times and all the things. And the message that comes through all of that is that you cannot, you cannot have fun in life without drinking. And that gets beat into kids from the time they can read and write and understand what's going on around them. And the devil's so clever at doing it. Every year, millions of kids get hooked on cigarettes. And they do it based on what they see. It's given the message is that real men smoke. The message is that a real woman who is a sophisticated, up-to-date, modern 21st century woman smokes. 
And that's the whole idea that gets out there. And kids growing up in school, they see the older kids doing it. They want to be like the older kids. So they, they do it too. When I know they, they, bland, they, they, you know, they, brand, they branded putting uh, the cigarette commercials on TV anymore. And uh, I think they still have them in magazines. But I grew up in the era where they were all over the place. And, you know, it was every man you saw was a great hunk of a man, and he had a cigarette in his hands. You get into a, watching a good war movie, and they're in a foxhole, and they're, they're coming down to uh, the end where they're going to get killed, and it looks like they're going to be overwhelmed. They don't share the last Bible verse they got out of the Word of God. They share the last cigarette together. The guy gets nervous. He has to have a smoke. He almost gets killed. got to have a cigarette. It's almost like the natural reaction to everything in life is to have a smoke. And when you see it in life everywhere, I remember growing up with the Marlboro Man. The Marlboro Man was a cowboy on a horse with chaps, and he's riding around on a horse with his lario, lariat, whatever you call those things on his horse, and he's walking around there having a good time. 10,000 cattle out there, and he's smoking a Marlboro, and the King comes across the screen. I mean, beautiful scenery out in the mountains someplace, cattle all over the place, real man sitting on a horse, smoking a cigarette, and underneath there, come to where the flavor is. People say, man, I got to have that flavor. You're so stupid. Did you ever smell 10,000 cattle? (laughs) It's sport. We're living in the days where now we're seeing legalization of marijuana. Once shunned and, 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 and marked as a dangerous drug, now it's going to be accepted as a natural thing. And I guarantee you, one state after the other is going to fall in this thing in time. Now, you know, they, they, they say you can, you can have so much marijuana and it's for recreational use. It's a sport. I, I caught Bill O'Reilly. I don't get to watch him very often, but I caught him this week over the Christmas deal. They had it on about four or five times. He had a, an investigative reporter by the name of Brian Waters who was going around the country uh, interviewing teenagers, and he went to Colorado for the Great Mushroom Festival. And he was he was kid just your age. I mean, the pot was everywhere. You talk about going to, you know, the Muslims and the Russians and the Chinese are not going to have to ever nuke us. They're going to, we're going to nuke our own brain. They're just going to walk in and take it over. He's talking about guys over there that don't have a job. I mean, they're out there. How often do you get high? I'm high all the time. One guy was seeing colors. One guy was this and one guy was doing that. And we, I sat there and I thought to myself, what is wrong with people that are supposed to be in? Can't you not see what this is producing? I remember back in the 30s, in the, in the late 20s, Gene Krupa. Most people don't even know who Gene Krupa was. He was a drummer. And Gene Krupa was a fantastic drummer. And he got hooked up on marijuana. They called him reefers back then. And he got addicted to marijuana, and they threw him out. And when he tried to come back, all the teenagers booed him off the stage because it was such a horrendous thing to do drugs and smoke marijuana back in the 30s. Man, times have changed, didn't it? And the message is that if you don't do that, you see, it's fun. It's fun. And a fool, he thinks it's sport to do mischief. Uh, Reality TV show. And don't get me started on those. 
party down south. Spring break. The idea, the idea that, 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 that living and acting like an animal is a fun thing to do. And that all kids should do it. The devil has always tried, and he's been very successful, I might add, to make sin look fun. Booze and the drugs and the sex and the cigarettes, and after a short period of time, your flesh gets hooked, and you're a slave to it the rest of your life. It's just that simple. Churches are filled with good people. I mean good people who could really do something for God, but have the chains of their foolish decisions hanging around them and shackle them in some kind of addiction. My greatest example of that is Samson. Samson, God had a job for Samson to do. He was one of the judges of Israel. But Samson, boy, you talk about a man who wanted to have fun. You talk about a man who thought sport and his wickedness and his sinfulness was fun. And he wound up, you know the story, he winds up being betrayed by the lovers of his life and he winds up being shackled by the Philistines, the type of the world, to two great pillars in their temple. And before they did that, they put him to a grinding wheel, stripped him naked, and he walked around in a circle, grinding the the grain into little wheat as he walked around there. And the Bible says all the Philistines made sport of him. They laughed at him. They made fun of him. Do you know what the world will do with you? Do you know what the devil will do with you once you give your life to alcohol, give your life to drugs, give your life to whatever you give it to? You're a fool. And once you do that and you think this is what life is, the world is going to wind up making sport of you. I've looked at that picture so many times in the book of Judges and I thought to myself, what an incredible thing. There's a child of God. There's the aristocracy of heaven. There's a child of God, Samson, who had a job to do for God. Now he's chained by his addiction. And the world makes sport of him. That's where it goes. And in time, on a national scale, across the United States, the whole, whole thing disintegrates. And now we're to the point where it's, it's sport to kill people. Initiation into gangs. You've got to go out and kill somebody. When I was in a gang, kid, and I was nine years old, our gangs were totally different. All I had to do to get in was to go steal some apples off the neighbor's tree. Not today. You've got you to kill somebody. And how about the sport where now you walk up to some old elderly man and you hit him as hard as you can and see if you can knock him out on the first punch. And it's a game. It's sport. Boy, you try that missing the first time with a guy who's got a concealed carry permit and you're in trouble. Proverbs chapter 26, verses 18 through 19 says, As a madman who casteth firebrands, arrows, and death, so is the man that, uh, that deceiveth his neighbor and saith, Am I not in sport? You hurt somebody and say, Oh, I was just kidding. Now that's a fool. That's a fool. Look at the last part of, of verse 23, it says, but a man of understanding hath wisdom. See, there's the fool. Here's the contrast. Here's the man who hath wisdom. Now, this contrast is a great, I love contrast in the Bible. I learn more by contrast than probably any other thing. And we've all seen examples of this in our own daily lives with people we associate with. 
Because you see, a fool will never, he'll never count the cost of his foolishness. He never will. He lives for the moment. He lives for himself. He's very selfish. He, he, he lives for the next party. He lives for the next relationship. He lives for this. He lives for that. He never stops and looks long-term or short-term at the cost of not doing what's right. He's a tough guy. He's street smart. And here's where he gets deceived. He thinks he can beat the odds, and he's smarter than the world system. And he may be smarter than the world system, but he ain't up against the world system. He's up against the most razor-sharp, simulating mind that got the best of every man that ever walked on planet Earth, his devil himself. And you'll never contend with him for five seconds. He'll get you every time. He'll get you every time. But a man of understanding and wisdom, he knows, he knows he can't beat the odds. He may even want to, but he knows he can't. He may sit there and deliberate, well, I really like to do this, or maybe I could get away with this. But then he comes back because he's got wisdom. It ain't worth the price. It ain't worth what it costs. And a man of understanding and wisdom, he knows he can't beat the odds. Short term, maybe yes, but he knows that there'll be an absolute law called the law of sowing and reaping, Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. And he knows that he'll get caught up in that sooner or later. He has wisdom. He sees the booze and the parties and, and all the things, and he looks past it. What he sees is the DWIs. He sees cirrhosis of the liver. He sees drunkenness as an addiction. He sees the DTs. He sees Alcohols Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. He's smarter than that, for he has a book that shows him the traps before he walks into it, just like Israel gets the instructions of God so they don't get deceived by the Antichrist. He's, he, he understands that the legalization of marijuana is nothing more than a gateway to higher drugs and more addictions. He, he sees it <coughs> going to ruin his family. He sees that what he's going to do is going to get passed on to his children. But a fool doesn't. A fool takes his addiction, takes his drugs, and when his kids get hooked on it or their kids get hooked on it, <coughs> he's too stupid to even see where the bottom line was. But a man who has wisdom and understanding, he'll see it. <clears throat> he may even get caught up in it for a short time, but he'll get out of it. He'll get out of it. <clears throat> so he stays away. He takes God's instructions. He takes God's reproof. He takes all the wisdom of God and the understanding he can get before he allows his foolishness and his bad choices to of his flesh to become an addiction. He's always looking long-term. And I try to tell you about that all the time, looking long-term at things in your life. Because short-term, sometimes you don't see it. Short-term, you only see the moment. Short-term, you only see the fun or the excitement of the moment. But it's long-term that you've got to look at. It's long-term. And a man with wisdom does that. He knows someday he'll be held accountable for his actions uh, as it relates to the plan of God in his life if he's saved. He also knows that, uh, uh, that uh, and I'll tell you this, I and mean, I'm talking about addictions today, and I want to tell you right now, every Christian ought to have an addiction. Amen. You see, there's lots of things in the Bible that, that have two meanings, and addiction is one of them. And if you're here this morning as a Christian, you should have an addiction. You should have an addiction. Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 15, that they were addicted to the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's the addiction you should have. But I want to tell you, 
you're going to be addicted to something in life. It's either going to be the world system or it's going to be God. But you will be addicted to something. It is that simple. It's just that simple. And you know, there's some great parallels between people who have addictions of the drugs or addictions of this or addictions of alcohol. There's some great principles. And it's, a, it's an incredible thing. You know, a guy who's on drugs, it affects his eyes. Do you ever notice that? His, his pupils look like pie plates. So he puts sunglasses on in the, when it's nighttime so he can't see them. They affect your eyes. They affect the way you see. Addiction to drugs will affect your judgment. You'll start making stupid choices. You'll start doing dumb things. Your judgment's gone. An addiction to the wrong things will affect your attitude. Your wife won't say, this is not who he is. I can always tell when he's on drugs. I can always tell when she's on drugs because of the attitude change, the mood swings. It affects your family. Because whatever you have in your life, you will surely pass on to your children. It'll affect every aspect of your life. And you'll be a different person once you get addicted than before you got addicted. I just described me. I'm an addict this morning. You need your pills, your meth, your heroin every day or you fall apart. I need my book every day or I fall apart. See, you're addicted to yours, I'm addicted to mine. Hey, man, I got an addiction. I'm juiced. When I don't get my daily fix, I get unjuiced. You don't want to be around me when I get unjuiced. You got your addiction, I got mine. Everybody's got one. Now, I don't know about you, but my addiction, when I got addicted, it affected my eyes. I don't look at things the same way I once did. It affected how I see things. And when I got addicted, just like the other guy, it affected my judgment. Now I got discernment and discretion. Don't always use it, but I got it. But now my judgment has changed. And I'll tell you something else. Once I got addicted, my attitude changed. People say, I meet people I haven't seen for years and years and years. They say, man, you ain't the guy I remember. You're right. I'm now addicted. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. All things are passed away. All things become due. My addiction got passed to my family. They're addicted. They better be. They're addicted. And when they got married, their spouses got addicted. We got a drug house over at our place. Addictions everywhere. My addiction made me a different person. Praise the Lord for it. You see, that's why I can understand what you're going through. When I sit down with somebody to try to help them with an addiction, I understand what you're going through, but the fundamental problem problem you got is you're a fool. You didn't take the instructions of God. You didn't take what God gave you. 
You didn't take the wisdom and understanding. Therefore, you got deceived and you thought your sin was fun and a sport. Here you are. Now, where a foolish man has no accountability, nor does he take any responsibility, and an addict will lie through his teeth. She will lie through her teeth. I've had them tell me that I'm not on drugs, and boy, I'll tell you what, their eyeballs look like two garbage can lids. I've had women say, people, or men tell me I'm not an alcoholic when they couldn't walk a straight line. I guarantee you every cop that ever pulls over a drunk driver and gets him out of the car and he's staggering all over the place, he's saying he didn't have too much to drink. You probably find one in a thousand where a guy just gets out and says, I'm drunk. I don't need to walk the line. I don't need to do a breath of test. I don't want to break your meter. I've had more beer than you could put in your trunk. Put the cuffs on. Take me to jail. I'm a drunk bum. Never happened. Now, I need to say this. I hear a lot all the time about, and I deal with people, I hear all the time, I, I'm right with God, brother. I'm getting right with God. I'm right with God. I got right with God. I, I'm right with God. I hear that so much, it just goes over the top of my head. We have learned to use the language of the Bible without ever committing the language of the Bible to where we're at. And we use it like, we, we use cheap words like that and throw them around like, you know, like, like everything else in the world that has no value to us. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something. To get right with God without taking responsibility for your actions against God, you cannot get right with God. If you did something that's wrong, you cannot get right with God without taking responsibility for your actions with God. I have people all the time that get caught in go to jail and, and, and talk to them in a the prison ministry or John Doe with them in a the prison ministry. They'll say, well, I was wrong. I did this and I did that. And they'll say I did. And then they'll try to get a lawyer to get them out. Well, they'll say I did wrong. The lawyer gets up and say, you didn't do anything wrong. If you did it, then take responsibility for it. It's just that simple. It'll go a lot farther with God if you just fess up, deal with it, take it, than if you try to hide it and say, I didn't do it when you did. Because there's no getting right with God without taking responsibility for your actions with God. Now, some of your parents need to realize this because you're going to deal with your kids as they grow up and you're that teenage group and they're going to do something stupid and you're going to have to deal with them and they're going to lay down the law to them and then a week later, five weeks later, they're going to try to turn the tables back on you because of the fact that they don't want now, uh, they want you to believe they're right with God, but they don't want any responsibility brought up to their face of what they did wrong. I'm not saying you beat your kids over the head for the rest of their life over something they do. But I am saying this. There are two steps that you have to take to get right with God. One, you have to take responsibility for your actions. And two, you have to be accountable to somebody for your actions. And if it doesn't have that, somebody's just playing you like a fiddle. Look at verse 24, back to Proverbs. The fear of the wicked, it shall come upon him, but the desire of the righteous shall be granted. Now, the fear of the wicked, it shall come upon him. Now, that's a great principle. And it's prevalent, again, to where we're at today. Unsaved people live in fear. God's people who are out of fellowship with God live in fear. And it's because of the X factor, the unknown. 
They have no hope because they're lost or they have no going for them because they're out of fellowship with God. And so they're kind of on their own. And when a Christian goes with the world instead of the word, he experiences the same fears. You see, because in time it catches up with you. And you experience the same fear that the world faces uh, even though you're saved. Either in this life through the trials and the troubles or in the next one at the judgment seat of Christ. In both, most cases. And all unsaved people and all people out of fellowship with Christ have an inner fear. And it's because of their conscience. Bible says in Romans chapter 2 verse 15 that when God made us, he wrote on our hearts, the tables of our hearts, the word of God. That forms our conscience. When you continually defile that conscience, whether you're saved or you're lost, you continue to defile that conscience, the Holy Spirit of God, that's the meeting point. And he takes that conscience and he deals with you on it. And when you don't get right and you don't do what you know to do right, then it builds into fear. And when you waste your life going after the world, the flesh, and the devil, in time, 20, 30, 40 years, that fear catches up to you. It'll catch up to you in a hospital room when the doctor comes back with a lung cancer diagnosis. And now you've got to face that by yourself. It'll come up and catch up to you in a situation where now you've got cirrhosis of the liver or some disease because of your sin, which you thought was fun. It'll catch up with you when you face the judge because you were drink driving and you hit somebody and killed somebody. Now you've got 10 years for manslaughter. It'll catch up to you sometime and the fear will overwhelm you. Scared to death. No place to go. The last part of verse 24 says, But the desire of the righteous shall be granted. Bible says in Psalm 37, 4, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of their heart. What a great verse. You know, God wants to get you to have everything that you need in life. He really does. He wants to make you complete. He wants to fulfill your life. He wants you to have uh, all the desires that he created you to have as a human man or a woman, all the fulfillment of a rich and blessed life. It's just simply that true. But it can't come from the world. It can only come from him through a relationship you build with him by delighting yourself with him. Last week we talked about how that salvation was free, that God died on the cross and salvation is a free gift. You get it free. But from that point on, you've got to work out your own salvation. From that point on, you've got to build the relationship with God. You've got to do the work. You've got to open up your Bible. You've got to get to church. You've got to let somebody teach you. At whatever level you're on today, if you're just somebody here and you say, Bob, I don't know anything about the Bible, that's, you're in the best place you could ever be because we're here to help you. We'll start out with a little baby steps of just teaching you the fundamental things about the Bible. If you're on another level up there, then we'll get a little deeper for you. It doesn't matter where you're at. All that matters to us is you get that place in your life where God gives you everything that he wants for you. I'm not preaching about these things because I'm trying to ruin your life and take all the fun out of your life. I'm trying to preach these things to you because what you're doing and where you're headed in some cases is going to destroy everything about your life. Because it'll catch up with you. God, on the other hand, wants to give you the desires of your heart, whatever that may be, whatever your, whatever your aspirations are, whatever your goals are, whatever your dreams are. God wants you to have everything you need in life to make you complete. But it has to, can't come from the world because out of his word flows all the issues of life and it has to come from the word of God. 
Every dream you have, every hope, every desire, all the fulfillment has to come from him, in him, and only through him. This is why Proverbs are so important. This is why we're taking the time to come through it. This is why I have a policy to sit down with you any time in the week, help you through. You can get a hold of me anytime you need, simply because these are the issues of life. These are the things that you have to get into your world, and I want to help you do that. Look at verse 25. As the whirlwind passes, so is the wicked. No more. But the righteous is an everlasting foundation. Verse 25 says, as the whirlwind passes, so is the wicked no more. Now, doctrinally, let's jump back to the the, the prophetic aspect here. Doctrinally, this will be a reference to the second coming of Christ, dealing with the nation of Israel. I'm going to show you both applications here. And I just want to give you this for some of you who are on maybe little higher levels here. Uh, In the Bible, there are certain words that will always mean certain things. I call them defining words. They'll always define the context of the chapter. And whirlwind is one of them. Whirlwind, wherever you find it in the Bible, the context will always be the second coming of Christ. It's likened to a whirlwind because a whirlwind tears things up. And boy, when he comes back at the second coming, he's going to tear things up. You'll find it in Isaiah 66, verse 15. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 13. Hosea talks about it in 8, 7. Job makes reference to it uh, in 38, 1. Jeremiah 25.32, Amos talks about it in one fourteen, And it, 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 it's a picture of God coming back, tearing everything up like a whirlwind. And in a tribulation context, you know, and I'm going to give you both, as I said, it's a reference to Israel's deliverance at the end of the tribulation from the Antichrist. Everything is done now. He says the years of the wicked are shortened. That's the Antichrist because he gets thrown into the lake of fire, verse 27. In verse 27, he says, The fear of the Lord prolongeth days. That's Israel. They're going to live forever. He says in verse 28, Expectation of the wicked shall perish. The devil's going to lose every chance he gets to try to destroy Israel. Verse 30 says, The righteous shall never be removed. Once Israel is in the land, she ain't ever going to get out of that land. Verse 30 talks about the wicked shall not inherit the earth. The meek is going to inherit the earth. Verse 25 talks about the righteous as an everlasting foundation. That's Israel. And it says in 28, the hope of the righteous will be gladness. When the Lord comes back, the devil's swept off. All the Antichrist is gone. All the wicked stuff is gone. You talk about a paradise. That's what you got. And doctrinally, all this is accomplished by the restoration of the nation of Israel when Christ comes back at the second coming, like into a whirlwind. That's the, see, that's the doctrinal. Now, let me show you the spiritual application. In a spiritual application, it's also true of you and me. The great parallels. You know that life without Christ is going to wind up being a whirlwind for you? You ain't figured that one out. You ought to spend a little time pondering that one. The day you get saved, everything changes. The day you got saved, you now have the ability to get past everything in life. I'm not saying that you won't have some bad things come your way. I'm not saying that some, there won't be some disappointment. I'm not saying there won't be some things that you wanted to go one way that went another way. Not saying that. What I am saying, you now have the ability to live above all the circumstances. If you use it. If you use it. And in a spiritual sense, number one and number two, the years of the wicked are shortened, but the fear of the Lord prolongeth days. That's a, that's a great contrast, and it's a general truth. 
You ever notice how many movie stars who have everything in life? They have all the, they go to some of the greatest, grandest parties that you ever saw. They live in great mansions that cost millions of dollars. They have many, many different cars. They have servants. They have everything they want. You ever wind up how many of them wind up killing themselves when they're in their 20s and their 30s? They die because the life of the wicked is shortened. There's no value in what they do. They burn themselves out. They're looking for something and they accelerate so quickly and so fast that it just consumes them and they're gone. They're gone. But the Bible says the fear of the Lord prolongeth days. You know why the fear of the Lord prolongeth days? Because one of the things that teaches you to be patient with life. Don't get in a hurry in life. Don't want things before they come in your own time in your life. Come to the point where you just wait on God to bring about the things in your life, knowing that he knows best. That Don't get in a hurry to get to the end of your life. Get in a hurry to get what God wants you to get out of your life. He says the third thing, the expectation of the wicked will perish. The devil right now wants to destroy mankind. That's his plan. He has an elaborate plan to make sin and foolishness sport. And his job is to take every young kid coming out of high school, now out of grade school, and bring them in through the college scene and the world scene that they think that sin and living like that and doing all those things is just a fun time. That's his plan. But the Bible says that when you get saved, that expectation doesn't apply to you anymore. But now you have the ability to have wisdom and understanding. Now you have the ability to see the thing as it really is. Now you have the ability to, to, to put things in your life that's going to help you. The fourth one says, The righteous shall never be removed. Because the Bible says you're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You're not going anywhere if you're saved. Five says, The wicked shall not inherit the earth. That's because he's going to inherit the lake of fire. The child of God, the new Jerusalem, the Christian, the nation of Israel, we're going to inherit the earth. Six says God's righteousness will be an everlasting foundation. The day you got saved, you laid a foundation in your life, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, maybe you saw me haven't built anything on that foundation. That's okay. It's okay. Maybe you got saved at some point in life and you just never did anything with the Bible and you're sitting here this morning saying, well, I've never done anything. That's okay. I would rather have you that way than to have to unwind a lot of goofy stuff out of your world. Because you know what? If you have a foundation in your life and you have the desire to be what God wants you to be and learn the Word of God, piece of cake, man. That's the easiest way to be it. The fact that you're here this morning and you don't know anything about the Bible, I don't care as long as you want to know some things about the Bible. The rest will take care of itself. The seventh one is the hope of the righteous will be gladness. Now there's the end result. There's the hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's the Word of God in my life. That's my hope, my only hope. Not that I hope it works, but in the world that I live in, it's the only hope that I got, and it will work. It's your joy. It's for fulfillment. It'll put the right addiction in your life that you'll go on into your families. Now, all that doctrinally, as I said, goes to the nation of Israel. But all that from an inspirational picture is a child of God in you and me living today who takes God's instruction and gets His wisdom. In the Bible, you find the word overcome. It's a great word. When you get saved and get God's instructions and wisdom and understanding, the Bible says that we overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
You know, when we're in this life right now until Jesus comes, we're stuck with it. Every day you've got to go to work. Every day you've got to deal with problems. Every day you're going to have to make choices in your life of who you let in and who you don't. Every day you're going to be faced with temptations. Every day you're going to have to be faced with things that you're going to do that you shouldn't do versus the right things you should do. That's not going to go away. But right now you do have a book that will give you the wisdom and understanding to make the right choices. It'll show you the long-term results and the short-term results. It'll show you why making the right choice is always the right choice. It'll show you how to do everything that God wants you to do. Be everything he wants you to be. And it comes in your own time. Nobody expects you to be a Bible theologian in, uh, in a year, but you go through a process. You go through a process of growth. You come to the point where you allow God to do in your life what he does the best. And that is simply to get you to grow. But at the end of the day, it's simply this. You and I will overcome the world or the world will overcome you and I. It's just that easy. There's nothing complicated about it whatsoever. Now look at verse 26, and I like this one. This is fun. As vinegar to the teeth, yuck, and as smoke to the eyes, so was the slugger to them that sent him. Now, you'd look at that verse and you'd probably say, now how is he going to get anything out of that? Oh, i just make it up. This is one of the greatest practical principles you're ever going to find. Nothing deep to it. Just right here where you and I live. Now, both vinegar, let's start here and look at it. Now, we do, what we do, we know. Both vinegar and smoke are very irritating. Vinegar, if you ever drank it, makes your teeth frazzle. And smoke irritates your eyes. And yet, these two are incredible things to see in the text. Now, we talk about vinegar being a, uh, an irritant. You know what? Vinegar in the Bible always will be associated with Christ on the cross. Psalm 69, 21. On Matthew 27, 48, when Christ was on the cross, they wouldn't give him water. What did they give him? They gave him vinegar. Smoke in the Bible will represent two things. Lost people without Christ and saved people at the judgment seat of Christ. The Bible says in Romans 14, 11, that an unsaved person who dies and goes to hell, the smoke of their torment extendeth forever and ever. But the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, that a saved person, when he goes to the judgment seat of Christ and his works are burned up, it all goes up in smoke. And it's very clear. God has saved us for a purpose. God has a plan for you and for me. God has something he wants us to do. He has a mission that he wants us to accomplish. He's paid our entry fee to salvation on Calvary's cross. I understand that. And all he asks back is if we're willing to help finish what he started. That's all he wants from us. Seems reasonable (laughs) until you start dealing with people. When you and I take what God has given us freely and do nothing with it, become a sluggard, what Christ did on the cross, where he was, went through all that he went through. When you and I take what God has given us freely and do nothing with it, we become that sluggard, then the Bible says that that is an irritation to God, just as the vinegar and the smoke irritates us. And God's people who will not give back to God after all he gave them become an irritation to him. Now, I know how pastors feel. 
in a human sense. I've seen over the years pastors, they pour everything they have into the church. They give everything they have to their people. And many times, many nobody cares. Many times the people absolutely do nothing with it. And I've seen it. I've seen it where they, it, it crushes them. I've seen it where it makes them angry. I've seen it where it frustrates them because they're putting out all this energy knowing the truth of God and yet the people are so resistant to what they're saying and do nothing with it. And I want to tell you um, how much more God must get irritated with us after all that he's done for us and our unwillingness to do anything back for him. See, it puts it into a context where everybody can grasp it. And I want to tell you, I've heard every excuse there is for not serving God and after you're saved. And I can tell you, not one will hold any value when it comes when we stand before Christ. Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that you laid a foundation in your life the day you got saved. We're supposed to build gold, silver, precious stones, if we're wise. The foolish man will build wood, hay, and stubble. And at that day, all the works will be tried by fire and it'll go up in smoke. You see, it's about building the things in your life. That's what this church is about. That's what I'm about. I get very passionate about it because it means everything to me. It's my addiction. I notice how you get when you don't get your drugs. You get sweaty. You get scared. You shake. You move around. You get irritable. Well, when I get passionate about my addiction, I'll let you have yours. You let me have mine. But at least my passion about my addiction is for you. Because I want you to come to the place in your life where you, you build the things in your life that make you an overcomer. Get you past what you're facing. I don't want anybody to, in life to have to suffer any more than they have to. But a lot of people do simply because they won't simply do the basic things. And none of this has been hard today. None of this has been, well, I mean, I, mean, I talked about some doctrinal things that you may have a hard time grasping, but 90% of it was just right on the table where you can see. The end of the day, you know what? We have to be an overcomer. We have a job that God has called us to do. You're going to overcome or you're going to succumb. It's going to overcome you or you're going to overcome it. It's just not simple. You know, and my whole job, the job of this church, the people that are here, that disciple you, that work with you, that that will get into your world, they don't get paid for it. It ain't like that they, they get some kind of spiritual notch on their spiritual pistol when they get up in heaven. You know, they do it because they understand, as I understand, that the job of any church is to help you get past what you're dealing with, struggling with, help you to be better every day of your life. We're coming down to the end of 2014. It's unbelievable that next week's going to be the new year, 2015. How much longer can this thing go on? But boy, I'll tell you what, it's, it's incredible. But we're moving right along with that. And I, you know, I challenge you, no matter what level you're on, and maybe you're, maybe you're into some deep problems, I, I don't know, but I challenge you to make next year different. Moving forward in your relationship with Christ. And that's, that's the greatest thing you can do. Every time we get the New Year's, everybody starts talking about, I hear it all the time, you know, what you're going to be, I'm going to have a make a New Year's resolution. I'm going to have a New Year's resolution. What most people need is not a New Year's resolution. They need a New Year's revolution. They need to radically change everything in their life to get where God wants them to be. But there's a process. And the process is from this point on. Don't look where you've come from. 
Don't look at the struggles you've had. Look to the future of where you want to go. Don't worry about where you've been. I say it all the time. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you did. I don't care what it is. All I care about is where you want to go from here. And don't focus anymore on on where you've been. Make the changes in your life. Do what you got to do. But now this next year, focus on where you got to go. Now, I'm going to give you, I'm going to leave you with a simple illustration. You're going to all leave here in a little bit. You're going to get in your car and you're going to drive home. And when you get in your car and you drive home, do you ever notice about your automobile? Any automobile? You got a windshield in front of you. That windshield goes from almost from 180 degrees from here to here. It's high. You can see all around you. You can see things over here. You can see things over here. You can see things in front of you. See everything clearly. But on the side of your car, you got what they call a rear view mirror. Did you ever notice how small the rear view mirror is compared to your windshield? You know why that is? Because the most of the time you're driving, you want to look at where you're going, not where you've been. And in your life this morning, you need to look where you're going and quit focusing on that little rearview mirror that shows you where you've been. Because this next year and every year after, it's about you building your relationship with him, getting the wisdom, get, getting him whatever help you need, getting whatever it takes, getting whoever has to spend time with you, getting you through whatever you're going through because you have value. Hey, if you're saved this morning, God died for you. If you're not saved this morning, he still died for you. And he wants you to fulfill for him not only his plan, but he wants the very best for you. The very best for you. Every head bowed and every eye closed.